Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Julian Legrand. I'm chairing this session. Uh, I'm very session. I'm very pleased to chair. Um, I've had strong endorsements for this book that we're going to hear something about, The Jilted Generation, Our Britain uh, Bankrupted Its Youth. I've had strong endorsements from my daughter, uh, in fact, both daughters, actually, uh, who uh, said I should read it and uh, digest the message, which, both of which I've done. Uh, but now you're in a position to hear something about the book. We're very pleased uh, to have uh, Ed Hauker here and Shiv Malak. Uh, Ed is Associate Editor of The Spectator, has previously worked for Channels for Dispatches uh, and The Independent, uh, and Shiv Malik is a freelance journalist who is currently working for The Guardian, uh, as I understand it. Um, they're going to talk to us, I think, basically about how uh, my generation has ruthlessly exploited uh, what I think the generation that most people in this room uh, live in. So no doubt they are guaranteed of a good reception. Um, we're, we're looking forward very much to hearing, hearing about it. Uh, the, I think that um, Shiv is going to start and yeah. Ed is going to continue. So without further ado, over to you. Hello. Um, I should start by saying we're very underqualified to give a talk at the LSE. We're both journalists, and of course our chair is an amazing economist himself, professor, uh, of many different things. So we feel a little uh, like we've entered the lion's den here when we're sort of professing to uh, talk about economics. But we're going to try. And uh, one thing that journalists uh, are supposed to be able to do is at least pick up on observable traits. And uh, we really started this book with a series of observations. Uh, and there are four of them. The first, well, there's a series of them, but the, the first, the four most important ones, perhaps this. One, people were delaying sort of long-term couple formation. And by that, we also sort of include marriage. The second one was that people were also delaying having children. The third was that those of a certain age were finding it increasingly difficult to get on the housing ladder or get themselves into a sort of stable accommodation, uh, and stable and affordable accommodation. And the average age, by the way, for those trying to uh, sort of uh, own a first-time house is now 38. And the fourth observation was this, that the nature of jobs had also changed. Uh, there's more part-time work and contract work and freelance work, and people are essentially uh, less able to get sort of careers in long-term stable employment. So we wanted to find out what was happening. And was it essentially this, culture determining economics or economics determining culture? And what do we mean by that? Simply put, are people making these choices, i.e. avoiding or delaying family formation or buying a house because of personal preference? Or is the general economic climate forcing people out of these options which they would otherwise choose? To put it crassly, are today's young people too lazy to work hard or perhaps uncommitted to ideas of commitment? Prefer the flexible lifestyle of renting a house and constant career change? Or are they being held back by an economy which doesn't look out or cater for their interests? So, we quickly realised that this uh, task at hand required us to go back and look at historical economic positions to see if today's options were as available as they once were. Our book is, in the first place, a generational accounting exercise, which means looking at how some types of people 
how the same types of people, sorry, in this case young adults, have feared and fared over different historical periods and trying to assess the advantages and disadvantages that each had. From the outset of this book, we admit selecting certain features of society and leaving aside others. So, for example, we don't look at how technological change has impacted so positively on today's young adults as compared to those of yesteryear. Nor do we assess the impact of social liberalism, for example, an array of sexual and personal freedoms, and the improvement, improved status of women and those from ethnic minority backgrounds. Again, these changes have been profound, but we didn't f feel qualified, especially given our time limit, to really delve into these much-discussed areas. What we did select were four areas, housing, jobs, the macroeconomic picture, and the state of politics. There were no particular criterion for these subject choices, except perhaps personal preference. But we think that these issues are of wider interest and will resonate because of their centrality to people's lives. So, firstly, by the way, I forgot my water. So, Ed, could you pass me a glass? Do you thank you very much. The bottle. Yes, thank you. Um, so, firstly, who are the jilted generation? And obviously there's a lot of young people in the audience today. That's good. And there's also older people. So we're going to have an interesting debate afterwards, I hope. Well, to start with, there's uh, 13 million of us. And we picked this line somewhat arbitrarily. And I keep saying that. And then Ed always corrects me. says, you can't have something that's somewhat arbitrary. Uh, it's like being a little bit pregnant. Um, so uh, the line that we did pick was 1979, September of that year. And why we picked that month is because those who were born after that period uh, were then forced into or ended up in a situation where they paid student fees for the first time. And that was the first generation who had paid student fees. Uh, and of course, if you were born the month before, you didn't have to do that. So uh, again, to outline the other sort of generation that we talk about, the baby boomers, there's about 16.7 million of them. They're an older generation, those born between 1945 and 1965. Um, and in the middle of that age bracket, between 65 and 79, those, that generation is commonly known as, the, as Generation X. We didn't actually look at them, and apologies for anyone who's born in those years. We don't really go into that, uh, and you can come and see us afterwards if you feel uh, also jilted. Um, again, let us stress that these divisions are general and only a guide, but some sort of division is necessary for the task, and we believe such lines do prove useful in drawing out the nature of long-term change. The background to this is that, and I'm just going to allude to this briefly, is that there's an ageing society. I'll elaborate on that a little later. But briefly, there will be 10 million over 75s by 2030 in this country. And this will have consequences which will be far-reaching. In this talk, I will focus on the macroeconomic picture. So I'm not going to go necessarily into housing and jobs. Um, but I will make a brief allusion to them right now um, and talk about them in context of the position of young adults today. Currently, as we demonstrate in our book, young adults are paying more than ever before as a proportion of their incomes to buy a roof over their head. And on the other end of the scale, uh, economic scale, there's about 1.7 million people on council house waiting lists. The current policies enacted today in today's uh, corporate spending review won't help that situation one jot. Then there's a job situation. Young people now number 1.5 million, or 60% of all those unemployed. That number is set to grow with the continuation of civil service freeze and um, as further redundancies uh, at the cheaper end of the employment market continue to occur. Meanwhile, one of the costs of entering the job market, that of education, has also gone up, as we've seen with student fees. 
uh, and they rocketed over that period from 1997 onwards and are set to actually be almost limitless in their, in their price. But these changes in the employment market predate the recession. We know that working people have been getting less of a share of GDP than ever before, and this is the GDP of this country, and globalization has also meant that entry-level wages have stalled. But leave those two things aside, uh, and if you want to know more, please do buy a book. Um, but to turn to the macroeconomic picture, in our book we call this inheritance, because the macroeconomic climate is more than just symbolic of what one generation leaves to another. We believe that a culture of short-termism has created a vast inequity between generations. My co-author, Ed Hauker, will go on to explain why and how that culture of short-termism has arisen. But for the moment, I'd like to go uh, to hone in on what a few of those constituent parts of our inheritance are. Firstly, we'd like to say that a group of people collectively mismanaged the legacy that they were handed down. Legacies which should have been passed down through generations to Britain's young adults today, but they were not. The first of these is council housing. Described by the Observer as one of the most popular political promises in history, the right to buy changed Britain forever. Quite simply, it was an advantage offered to previous generations that allowed council tenants who had lived in their house for more than two years to stop paying rent to their council and start paying mortgages for their homes. Enacted in 1980, the scheme was both ideologically and electorally useful for Margaret Thatcher's administration the most sincere move her government made towards the creation of that property-owning democracy and an instant hit with the buyers who showed their support for her at the ballot box. Between 1980 and 2009, 1.85 million formerly public homes were sold to their tenants in England, another 450,000 in Scotland, the biggest change to Britain's housing stock since the Blitz. The vast proportion of these sales occurred during 1980 to 1995, under the right to buy scheme, and that's very important, obviously, because it wasn't a case of enacting a market sell-off. The government gave a further incentive to purchasing a house. They slashed the price. That meant that those who were lucky enough to be around at the time of the sale could buy the, those homes of between 60 and 40% of their real value, depriving the exchequer of half the revenues that might otherwise have received on the open market. The scale and the effect of right to buy has still not been properly understood. But marking the 30th anniversary of the scheme, HSBC tried to estimate the total worth of the right to buy. The figures are astounding. For one thing, it constitutes the single largest piece of privatisation ever attempted by the British government. Larger, in fact, than all others, trains, waterboards, electricity suppliers, airports, put together. HSBC estimate that the total cost of the housing stock sold was an almighty 85.74 billion, of which the state received just 45 billion. So, the right to buy generations were able to, take, to make a flat 40 billion profit as soon as they got a mortgage. Of course, the money that was raised by the sale of council housing stock was not used to build further homes. During this period of market liberalisation, there was also the privatisation of public utilities, from which government made around £58 billion. Again, like council housing, uh, shares were effectively subsidised at the point of sale. Those who purchased them made an instant 20% profit. If the idea behind these sales was that Britain would become a share-owning society, this strategy failed. Share ownership rates actually declined over the Thatcher era. In 1964, before government even thought it a priority, the rate of ownership was 54%. Today, just 10% of the value of shares traded on UK stock markets is held by individuals. 
In many respects, the rest have been sold off around the world. Um, in many ways, council housing and national utilities were entrusted to the public by previous generations to be passed on to the next. Their economic sacrifice was meant to benefit all forever. As we can start to see, this did not happen. Only one generation has benefited. Another pertinent example of this is the legacy of North Sea oil, which raises questions of environmental rights and environmental rights uh, when it comes to generations. The discovery and bringing to profit of North Sea oil added an average of 1.7% to GDP during the Thatcher years. That's basically millions and millions of pounds each year. Even in 1999, Britain was producing more oil than Iraq, Kuwait, or Nigeria. Britain treated the oil revenues as nothing exceptional, just another income, like taxes to be handed out to those who lived at the time. It could have been done differently, though. Most notably, the Norwegians placed their oil revenues into a sovereign wealth fund that has now grown to 300 billion and will generate wealth and improve the lives of the citizens for years to come. PricewaterhouseCoopers recently estimated that if Britain had done the same as the Norwegians, Britain would today have a fund worth 450 billion. But not only have benefits been granted to previous generations, but not ours, we also bear exceptional burdens, most noticeably in terms of pensions. Since the recession began, private pensions in the UK have taken a battering. Our private pension schemes are now looking at a shortfall of 200 billion nearly six times more than when the recession hit. And this problem has been dramatically exacerbated by the pension stealth created tax created by Gordon Brown, which has removed at least 100 billion from the value of these funds. And as the economy has slowly, uh, only slowly begun to recover, this tax makes it more difficult for the pension firms to make up the shortfall. But if the funding of our private pensions is in a bad way, public pensions are much, much worse. Since 2004, the annual state pension payments made by the government to British citizens have skyrocketed to a third, to a little less than 80 billion. Um, these payments now account for 12% of total government spending, and the expense is set to grow dramatically because Britain's demographics are shifting. In 1971, people aged under 30 made up nearly half the population. Now they make up barely one third. And while the proportionate absolute number of young people has declined, we now have more pensioners. In 1971, over 60s made up one in five of the population. By the time of the last, uh, last of the baby boomers retire in 2030, they will make up almost one in three. Not only will there be more pensioners and a higher pension bill, but there will also be fewer people. That's the jilted generation to help pay for it. So far, not a single thing has been done to remedy the situation. It took government years to realise there was even a problem. Professor Martin Wheel of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research says, uh, the rise in old age life expectancy was so sudden and unexpected that the statisticians thought it was a blip and the trend would return to normal. But it didn't. By the 1990s, it was known that people were going to be living for much longer, but nothing was done about it. You might think that today it would be quite straightforward to lessen the burden on the shoulders of young people. After all, if there's a pension pot out there, we could make it work harder, either by investing it into new businesses or by using it to pay down some of our national debt. And when the fortunes of Britain's economy pick up, the problem might be solved. Right? Wrong. There is no pension pot. Instead, the British government has always operated a pay-as-you-go state pension scheme. 
The theory is that every worker in Britain pays into it through national insurance, and the cash is then immediately distributed to the current crop of pensioners. Workers don't pay for their own retirement. They foot the bill for those who are in retirement already. In this respect, the UK state pension operates like a Ponzi scheme, almost identical to the operation run by the New York investor, Bernie Madoff. The only difference is that no one is lying about how pensions work here. Both systems work on the basis that there is always more money being paid in than out. But as soon as the balance tips over, the system is left exposed. Because of this high risk, Ponzi schemes are completely illegal. But when Madoff's crooked ventures were uncovered, he ended up in a US federal prison. The only people who will be punished for the failure to take tough decisions on pensions in this country will be the jilted generation. Why should that have happened is, um, what should have happened, sorry, is that all pay-as-you-go schemes should have been readjusted a long time ago. Every worker should have been paying in for what they would receive later in their greatly extended retirement. In other words, our parents should have saved much more. One option would have been for government to have saved much more by, rising, uh, by raising national insurance contributions to fund the shortfall. Another would have been for private individuals to have prepared better for their retirement, so government intervention wasn't necessary. But since no one admitted the situation, this didn't happen. And the long-term costs of short-term thinking have built up. The government actuarial department estimates that the unfunded part of UK pension liabilities now equals 2.2 trillion. Of this figure, 1.4 trillion will pay state pensions and 800 billion will pay comparatively generous pensions to public sector employees. Regardless of what's done around the fringes, the hard fact is that Britain's young people will bankroll almost the entire scheme. That means our pay packets will be smaller than they otherwise would have been, and the costs of living our own lives, raising kids and providing for the next generation, will be harder to afford. So, we don't talk about capital investment or savings, but over this period, we leave that to the rest of the book, but over the, this period too, these rates have declined significantly. Our net national savings is one measure which could help to identify whether the money released from selling off legacies and transferring expenditure from the present to the future had been invested in some other way. Unfortunately, these have remained at an average of 3% of GDP over the last 20 years, some of the lowest saving rate figures in the developed world. So the wealth hasn't been invested, nor has it been saved. Perhaps it will come to us in the form of personal inheritance. Of course, with a population that lives longer than ever, this process will be delayed by many, many years. But even when all that's accounted for and folded into the total picture of national inheritance, generational economists believe that our parents' generation, the baby boomers, will leave an average debt, debt for future generations equal to £33,000 each. And this total was calculated in 2005, two years before the crash. As Martin Weil concludes, it is as if the previous generation went on a 20-year binge. One last word. There are other aspects of Britain's inheritance that are much more sinister. Parts of our debt that were hidden in balance sheets by those who knew that they were borrowing from future generations under the private finance initiative, a system specifically designed to ensure that the cost of current government expenditure projects would be heaped onto the shoulder of future taxpayers and citizens. We don't have time to go into all the details here of why this scheme came about, but essentially it had been a giant credit card which would be billed, which would be billed directly and blatantly to the next generation. In financial terms, the upshot is that while the total capital value of PFI is 56 billion, 
they will, it will cost, the schemes will cost Britain just a tiny bit more, 267 billion, 60% of which will be spent on servicing the debt, which begins to look like very bad value for money indeed. Worse, 214.5 billion is due after 2011. So that cost will fall upon us, the children's generation. PFI has, used, has been used all across Britain to build schools, roads, courthouses and computer systems. In fact, even the UK Treasury building itself was redecorated using a PFI scheme that will take 35 years to pay off. But to us, things look like the real cost of... Uh, this looks like the real cost of political cowardice. Neither the Labour Party nor the major governments who embraced PFI were prepared to really pay for the investment that they wanted to make. To be specific, they were afraid to go to the electorate and demand higher taxes for the services that they wanted. Instead, they took the credit and we pay off the credit card. That's a poisonous inheritance for any generation to pass on to their children. Thank you, and I'm going to pass on to Ed to complete the circle. Thank you. I'd just like to echo my colleague's words. I'm incredibly um, uh, pleased to be here tonight, and um, I promise to be as brief as possible. Um, also, I'm not going to talk about statistics, because um, I don't know a huge amount about them. I left that to Shiv, who, in the process of writing this book, spent many, many hours at the British Museum compiling hundreds of pages of Excel spreadsheets um, that, um, that are bewildering in size and scale, certainly, to me. But what I'd like to talk about is the political culture that surrounds some of these problems that emerge. Um, uh, I mean, to pick up where Shiv left off, really, you know, that economist Martin Wheel, who's now on the Monetary Policy Committee, um, you know, makes this point that governments aren't supposed to go on 20-year binges. So, I mean, actually, much of our book is about what happens, um, what, what has happened to mean that, that that happened. And I'd like to give a very brief summary of the argument we assert in the book. We don't lay the blame for specific and sometimes pretty catastrophic errors at the feet of um, our parents' generation or an entire cohort of people. Um, the need for a banking bailout you know, isn't the fault of a generation, it's the fault of bankers and brokers who believe they could model the repayment of home loans to the poor in North America so accurately that they could insure them and package them and then sell them on again at profit. Um, that no serious provision for state pensions was made by the British government, even when they discovered that the system was unsustainable, is the fault of civil servants and ministers, but not directly of those who are about to claim that pension. So our point is much more straightforward. We must begin to change the way our politicians uh, address that rather vague notion of the unknowable, the future. How is it, for example, that Tory politicians felt it possible to describe Labour's plans for a responsible universal pension reform in the 1990s as not a tax, but like a tax? Um, why, when they did so, was more pressure not brought to bear on them by the rest of society, by the captains of industry, by the solemn investors and concerned voters? Put simply, our argument is that British politics uh, or British political culture has been gripped by a kind of irresistible force of now, too often focused on the short-term satisfaction of voters and not on their long-term interests. And this has happened following a peculiar twisting of language and because of some very long-term social, economic and political trends focused around individualism and self-expression. Now, these trends are essentially positive, um, but they've had an unhappy effect on our national debate. 
In our, in our book, the way we tell this story begins in the late 1940s when two groups of people um, who seemed very new and extremely strange uh, appear together on the streets of London for the very first time. The first, united by their music, was a tiny cult of young men determined to revive the jazz styles that began in Chicago in the 1920s. Led by artists like George Melly and Humphrey Littleton, they were un- unconventional public schoolboys, essentially, with a very distinct take on what was cool. The second group, united by their clothing, were teenagers raised in the poorest areas of South London who, seemingly for no good reason, began to dress in long Edwardian coats and drainpipe trousers. They were collectively known as teddy boys. And both groups were young, both saw themselves as distinct from conventional society, and all the more more romantic for that. And they were the first manifestations of a youth culture that would later be gripped by the satire boom in the late 1950s, fall in love with the Beatles in the early 1960s, and lead a counterculture in the years that followed. All of these different age groups would have something in common, though, but it wasn't the music, and it wasn't the politics, and it wasn't the culture. Instead, they were the first, uh, uh, among the first kind of cohort or generation in our society who were kind of free and educated, and in the booming post-war economy, relatively rich for their age. And in a constrained and class-ridden society, they desperately wanted to express themselves. How this educated, mobile and creative generation and those that followed them would realise that ambition is vital to understanding why we are where we are today. Back in the 1950s, academics and commentators were quick enough to note that Britain now had a youth culture, but it wasn't until the end of the decade that the behaviour of these youths would be systematically examined. Uh, about ten years later, Mark Abrams, um, who later became a Labour pollster, actually, he published a book uh, based on the analysis con- of consumption trends and polling information, and he called it the teenage consumer and argued that young people were intensely preoccupied with discovering their identities and consuming products that were emotionally charged. He said that teenagers were not rational but had unique teenage patterns of consumption. And he saw this consumption as intrinsically linked to working-class consumerism, which had begun much earlier but which found meaningful expression in the post-war environment through the growth of higher purchase schemes of ownerships, for example. Um, At at that time, the discussion of a classless society was becoming a fixation of commentators in Young Radicals, and Abraham's book kind of added fuel to that kind of fire. Serious new works of analysis were undertaken. Exploring power was being exercised in Britain, and by whom, though? So Hugh Thomas, uh, later Lord Thomas, edited a book exploring the establishment, a kind of shadowy network of great institutions secretly running Britain uh, and were holding back the creativity of the mass of society. The writings of, Ita- uh, of the Marxist Antonio Gramsci we set out to describe a kind of he- hegemony in which one ruling class runs society for their own benefit became hugely popular. But Gramsci wasn't the only show in town. There's another chap, too. In 1956, Richard Hoggart wrote a book called The Uses of Literacy, in which he suggested that the forces of political radicalism and baby boomer insurgency were a sort of red herring. Instead, the rise of consumerism itself would change Britain's communities, particularly for the working class. He explained that British culture was undergoing a process of what he called massification, uh, and that involved mechanisms by which metropolitan advertisers and national media were kind of robbing localities of, uh, uh, of their individuality and people within them of inherited values. There was, of course, a political movement in the decade that followed the publication of his book, but this countercultural movement, led by a young vanguard intent on breaking down class barriers in society, was not altogether what it seemed. What was important was the self-expression, not necessarily what was said, and that meant the movement could be commodified. And the process by which this counterculture became an over-the-counterculture was almost too slow to notice. Um, but, the, but the process of understanding what happened and why um, began in the 1970s in America, um, where we first got a sense 
of what was really going on with this generation who seemed to be so aggressively political. There, in America, life insurance companies had become panicked by the fact that US baby boomers, this kind of new young political movement, had stopped buying their services. They simply couldn't understand why they weren't buying life insurance anymore. So they um, asked a researcher called Daniel Yanklevich to um, find the answer. And he published a document called Finance-Related Attitudes of Youth, which is the first really serious attempt to understand what motivates this kind of new generation of young people. In an interview completed decades later, Yanklevich explained what he found. The life insurance business was built on the Protestant ethic, he said. You only bought life insurance if you're a person who sacrificed for the future. They had some sense that the values of the Protestant ethic were being challenged by new values that were starting to appear, and I was really astonished by what I found. The conventional dominant interpretation was that it had to do with political radicalism, but it was clear to us that, what was, that that was a mask, a cover. The core of it had to do with self-expressiveness. This preoccupation with the inner self, that was what was so important to people. What Yanklovich had discovered is that these new citizens were consumers, and they wanted products that would express their individuality. A particular music system, he said, your clothing, these become ways in which people can spend their money in order to say who they are. In 1970, the prime desire to be an individual was just a small percentage of the population, maybe 3 to 5%. By 1980, it had spread to 80%. And these new desires were going to require very new ways of marketing products. Traditionally, advertising was designed to offer products that would solve a problem. Buy a chair if you need to sit down, buy a coat if you're cold. And advertising focused on how individual products could offer a solution. However, if people weren't interested in merely solving problems, but expressing themselves, this made advertising much, much more difficult because corporations had no way of knowing how people wanted to express themselves. And a solution for that was found at the Stanford Research Institute, where a, te- a technique for accurately targeting self-expressive new individuals was developed called Values and Lifestyles. Now, the objective, uh, the objective of Values and Lifestyles survey was not to discover what a consumer needed, but who they wanted to be by examining their social values. Val's researchers drew a distinction between traditional consumers, old-fashioned consumers, and new expressive consumers uh, of of the kind that had been associated with that youth culture earlier. And they called these people the inner director. What Val's could do was understand very specifically who they were and what their values stood for. And that allowed companies to market products to them, not on the basis of what those products could do, but how they would make them feel. By the late 1970s, SRI had taken its techniques over to the UK, and then something quite strange and interesting happens. They noticed that the language used by Margaret Thatcher and and in the US by Ronald Reagan about freedom of individuals was exactly what these inner-directed new consumers wanted to hear. In 1975, Thatcher had told the Conservative Party conference, some socialists seem to believe that people should be uh, numbers in a state computer. We believe they should all be individuals. We are all unequal. No one, thank heavens, is like anyone else, however much socialists may pretend otherwise. We believe that everyone has the right to be unequal, but to us, every human being is equally important. These new inner-directed consumers, obsessed with expressing themselves, were completely seduced. As Christine McNulty, who's one of the UK VAL's programme managers at the time, stated, um, it was the inner-directors who said that they would vote for Thatcher and for Reagan, and and who indeed made the difference in those elections, which is borne out by the voting statistics. Since then, the language of personal freedom and self-expression has become nothing sort of a lingua franca in modern political debate. Of course, there are echoes of the language of the 1960s in politics since then, um, in Blair's cool Britannia and Major's classless society. 
But we believe the really profound change in Britain's approach to politics has been the focus on satisfying people, not as citizens necessarily, but as self-expressive consumers and individuals with an unhappy effect on rational discussion of shared interests, um, which seem to have been kind of sublimated in a language of rights. Now, you might be pleased to hear that I'm not about to embark on a transient attack of the Human Rights Act or um, rights when considered within the law, even slightly. But what I would like to discuss before I end, very quickly, is um, uh, the kind of um, way of thinking uh, of fake rights that has come to undermine our ability to think clearly and fairly about the long term. Examine for a second that chestnut, rights and responsibilities. Tony Blair coined it almost 20 years ago, and the jargon has been used by every political leader since. All of them, at one time or another, have applied it to young people, and particularly to our generation. They've said that if the jilted generation took some more accountability for themselves, stopped being antisocial, and short-term, everyone would be happier. But the language of rights and responsibilities was designed by Blair as a sort of catch-all term for what being a citizen or transacting more generally with the state should look like. You have the right to vote. You have the responsibility to pay taxes. You have a right to privacy from the state. You have a responsibility to obey the law. You have a right to claim expenses. You have a responsibility not to use those expenses to buy a duck house um, or a flat screen or your adult channel subscription. Um, However, um, um, the phrase rights and responsibilities doesn't speak meaningfully to employment problems or housing problems. It doesn't speak to national debt or personal ones, and it doesn't address, therefore, the most fundamental problems that face our irresponsible generation. But this has not stopped politicians of all shades misappropriating this language of rights to describe all kinds of flexible benefits um, passed between generations. No one, however much they claim otherwise, actually has a right to a job or a right to affordable housing. A job has to be earned. Housing has to be paid for by individuals or civic institutions or civil society or the state. And how much we pay is subject to massive change. Casting back to 1979, at the point when Val's researchers realised that Thatcher was talking their language, you can get a sense of how bad language and poor decision-making are linked. Examine, for example, Margaret Thatcher's victory speech in that year, in which she said, by bringing legislation, we will give every council tenant the right to buy his own home at a substantial discount, and with a 100% mortgage, we will start to transform the housing picture. Never mind the, the economics that my colleague referred to. Think about that language for a second. There was no right to buy council property, as Thatcher described it. The opportunity was limited to one particular group of people, council tenants, at one particular time, the 1980s. There's no comparable right for our generation today because most of the homes have been sold. But there was also no right to buy because council housing is not a right, but a benefit created by earlier governments and generations who'd sought to address an acute social need. A benefit had been made available to Thatcher's tenants and the implicit obligation that came with that benefit to address housing needs by replacing the stock and investing the receipts from housing sales was ignored. Or take Tony Blair's speech to Labour supporters in the Royal Festival Hall on the morning of the 2nd of May 1997, in which he said, Today we have set an objective for a new Labour government, a world-class education system in which education is is not the privilege of the few, but the right of the many in our country. University education, to which he was referring, is not a right. You can't codify it in law, and certainly not when nearly half of the population are leaving school without five decent GCSEs. Had Blair not considered education a right, though, which simply had to be fulfilled regardless of who paid and at what cost, but a benefit that he enjoyed for free with associated obligation to provide it and in a knowledge economy even improve on it in the future. 
If Blair had examined his student loans and tuition fees in this context, perhaps our ongoing conversation about the extent of student fees might have turned out rather differently. And that's not to say that politicians must always confine themselves to the limits set out by their predecessors. Merely that every time inheritance is abandoned, it behoves those, of a, those who do it to acknowledge their responsibilities in the long term. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both very much. Um, we've got, thank you very much too for sticking to your time allotment. Um, uh, very precise in that. So we've got um, uh, about 45 minutes for questions, answers and challenges. Um, so um, over to you. Maybe I'll begin by, by asking a question. Uh, isn't the real crime of our generation, my generation I should say, uh, living too long. I mean, in the sense that um, the, the production of one generation, or the production uh, in, in any one year, um, the way that the elderly are kept alive is by the production of the people, not uh, the production of the people in the labour force. Yeah. Um, whether we'd save through a funded pension scheme or through a pay-as-you-go pension scheme doesn't really make much difference, in fact. It's simply the question of the production in one year is used to transfer uh, either via a funded pension scheme or via a pay-as-you-go scheme. Fund production in one year is used to transfer uh, to uh, the consumption of another. If we'd all died at the age of 65... Mm. Um, presumably there would be no problem because we would produce the rest of it. So our problem is that we are actually living rather a long time and presumably the answer in that sense is actually for us all to have to work longer and to raise the pension age, which incidentally you said nothing was done in the 90s. There, were, I mean, there, there was an attempt to do that and indeed of course we're now seeing uh, <laughs> that's happening right now. Fifteen years later. Fifteen years uh, later. Well, I guess if you're worried about generational equity, then, well, first of all, let's state this, which is that, no, we don't have a problem with people living longer. And it's actually a very good thing. It's an amazing thing. Um, and if done in the right way, economically speaking, certainly, um, it can be extremely <laughs> fruitful. Uh, what we've messed up on, completely and utterly, is actually holding people to account um, even as, well, as either individuals or as part of a citizenry, as a part of a country. So what we didn't say in the 1990s, I mean, we, the message was out there, look, people are living longer, we need to save more. Individuals need to save more for their own individual expenditure, which will come later on, um, when they aren't working. And we didn't do that. That message wasn't put across because it was, politicians were essentially really weak. Well, hold on. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. Um, but, um, I mean, actually, what happened around pensions is really interesting. There were some very serious people trying to raise the retirement age. Frank Field was working in the mid-1990s to try and create some kind of universal pension provision that would ensure um, that this stuff would be done and addressed and paid into. Uh, and in fact, the system which the coalition are currently recommending for our generation is the one that he sort of suggested pretty much, um, you know, 15 years ago. Um, but what happened was that those political battles were lost, and they were lost actually very straightforwardly because of some very short-term political objectives. So in the case of Frank Field, he suggested these proposals and then stood up, I think, against Peter Lilly, who at the time was working pension secretary, who said, well, look, you know, this stuff is just like a tax. Uh, in the case of the retirement age stuff, there was, you know, there was difficulty in dealing with the politics there. And, I mean, there, there is a, a reason for that, which is that the short-term... Um, 
uh, kind of personal interests of voters were appealed to above and beyond the kind of medium and longer term responsibilities, which I think are so important. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. Well, now, obviously, the irony being that Frank Fields has now been brought back in 15 years later to try and sort out an even bigger pensions mess. It's just a, it's bigger because it's been delayed, or well, the solutions have been delayed. Right, well, okay, let's jump in here. To what extent is the Bank of England? Uh, I think it would be useful if people said who they were. Oh, um, um, my name's uh, Tristan Elwell, ex-LSE student, uh, ten years ago or so. Um, to what extent is the Bank of England culpable in all this? After all, they've overseen a huge housing boom, um, which has certainly uh, transferred wealth from the younger to the older generation because of the nature of home ownership. Um, they've... Uh, they've it's quite clear that wealth has been transferred from the West to the East and the illusion that you might argue that policymakers have allowed is this housing boom to allow Western consumers to believe that they're still rich when they're not. Um, and the solution to this is printing money. So the, the monetary authorities have responsibility for this and uh, if so, what are the consequences of that? Um. Well, one guy who's been appointed to the Bank of England's Monetary Economic uh, Policy Committee has been, is a guy called Martin Wheel, who I referred to in my talk before. Uh, he's been really hot on these issues about intergenerational equity um, and justice. Um, and he did a study, incidentally, when you talk about housing, uh, about how much that housing wealth was worth uh, that has been passed up from our generation or from a younger generation to the older generation, i.e. those who already own a home. And he worked out, I think the figure was 1.3 trillion. So again, about a year's worth of GDP. Uh, and that's why older people suddenly think that, yes, oh, it's brilliant. You know, my house is like a cash machine. Um, I, you know, I don't do anything, and suddenly I've got a lot more wealth. Well, that wealth does come from somewhere, and it comes from young people, and those at the bottom of the ladder sort of putting in. Um, what is then the Bank of England? That's just a slight aside. What is the Bank of England uh, got, you know, what are they responsible for? I think, well, all politicians and people working finance are tackling... Um, one major problem, which is essentially globalization, which is how do you... The first thing that Thatcher did when she came in in 1979 was to give up economic sovereignty by relinquishing cap capital controls. And that's what other countries did at the same time. So it was part of a general atmosphere. Um, and I think once you do that, then it's very difficult to then try and sort out these problems, to ask a very simple question, which is what do you want? Because if suddenly some of the things that you might want, like hard work paying or lower sort of uh, property prices, all these things become harder to control. I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the general answer to your question. So I, it's hard to actually blame anyone in particular when actually, you know, these, uh, these bodies don't have the control that they used to. Well, um, but I, I would just step in and say, um, I mean, look, it's quite a complex question because you have to really make a judgment about whether the extent to which the Bank of England, having been given its quote-unquote independence, was really independent or not. Because, I mean, you could argue, actually, that it was... I mean, some people do argue, I'm not one of them, but, you know, that it was, it was massively politically motivated, that everybody there were basically patsies doing evil Labour government's uh, work for them. I mean, I don't really subscribe to that, but what I, I do think, actually, is that, that you could probably fall, probably quite easily, make a case that both Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were aware of what was happening in the property market. I mean, there are... Um, Treasury documents came out from about 2001 to 2002 saying the entire market is being propped up by buy-to-let rather than first-time buyers. I mean, they were aware of that. Um, it's not clear they necessarily did anything about it. And indeed, you know, given, in fact, what was even in the Labour manifesto 
um, this time round, where there were some specific suggestions for particular benefits of biter letters, where they would necessarily want to do anything about it. Um, so, I mean, you know, there is a political response. I mean, I, I also don't think, uh, or there is a political responsibility, I also don't think it's necessarily true that um, uh, globalisation is purely responsible, because, I mean, there are flexible ways of improving house building or, or raising the number of houses being built uh, and regulating the housing market, and that's happened in the past. Um, so, so, yeah, um, that's all right. The gentleman here. <coughs> My name is Paul Friedman. I'm Canadian and American, and in both those countries, the situation is essentially the same. There's pay-as-you-go pensions, more part-time work, housing is difficult for young people to get. I have this conversation uh, about the, t the topic that you've been speaking about with my daughter, and there's very little outrage. There's very little political movement. It's hard to get young people to vote. You know, I'm of the baby boom generation that, mm. that benefited from all this and um, when there were things going on that we were unhappy with, we marched, you know, we, we took some political action and ultimately I guess we made enough noise that governments responded to us and adopted policies that are essentially doing what you spoke to. So I guess the questions I have to you is why are there no marches, why are there no protests, why is it so hard to get young people to engage in the, the topics that you're speaking to today? There are in France, of course. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In fact, that was one of the things that we referenced in the book, that in 2006, people sort of went uh, on marches in France, and that's being repeated now, and it was young people. And what they were marching for was for, the, for things to say the same. They were marching, basically, to be conservative, uh, which is a, an awful <laughs> thing to have young people march for. But that's how badly they sort of felt. They said, actually, we feel like, I mean, to, to use that language, they feel like pieces of shit. That was the quote. Uh, and they hung nooses around their neck. And they said, you, you just want to get rid of us. I'm typically sort of French and over, slightly overdramatic. Apologies to anyone who is French in the audience. Excusez-moi, um, monsieur. Yeah. Um, we just come from France, actually. We did a talk there on Monday. And, uh, and it was interesting to so be you, in that. So it's your, your fault, is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, is that why they're on the we're leaving a trail of destruction behind us. Um, no, uh, and it was, uh, again, it, was a, it is a very interesting atmosphere. And today we've had uh, the corporate spending review, um, and we're picking it apart. We haven't had time today to do it, but uh, I, I certainly will be doing it tomorrow, and see what the outcomes are for young people. And I think the head of the NUS said, it's basically the government has stared one generation in the eye and said, you're on your own. Um, I mean, maybe we should ask the audience, really, because this is the LSE. Uh, it's been known to be politically radical in the past. Um, uh, who under 30 feels a bit annoyed, let's put it in that British way, uh, about housing <laughs> and LSE student way fees? To put it. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, about housing and student fees. Raise your hands. Okay, well, see, the outrage is certainly out there. Um, to get to your question... Hold on, uh, hold on, that's just, look, you're leading the witness. You said a bit annoyed. You got yeah, sorry, outrage. Sorry, yeah. Um, maybe I we're think not the quite slight out. annoyance is there. <laughs> yes, well, the yeah. slight annoyance is there. <laughs> slight annoyance is definitely there. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, okay, so, so we had this question put to us uh, a couple of days ago and even before that um, about then, you know, why aren't young people doing anything about it? And I guess our answer is actually what we've 
we've been, I mean, this is the general answer, and Ed might disagree. In fact, he probably will at some point, but um, it's been good that way. Um, we, we, we disagree pretty much on everything, except for what's in the book. I mean, another way yeah. of looking at the contents of the book is just the stuff we agree on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, it's perhaps answering like this, that we've lived through an era, um, what, what the baby booms fought for, essentially, was personal freedom. Uh, what you end up with is an age of individualism, and individuals are quite, find it quite difficult to actually work together, almost by definition, uh, to, for collective ends. And these problems that we identify about housing and unemployment uh, and, and the jobs picture and, uh, are actually things that require politics. They require people to work together. Um, so it's not just about saying, I want freedom to do this, that, and the other, for me. It's about saying, how do we work together, me and you, who I don't maybe know that well, um, but I realize we have the same, you know, we, we are afflicted by the same situation. How do we work together? And that's quite difficult because you have to rebuild all of those structures again. That essentially, I think, is, would be, would be uh, our, my answer to that. I agree. Excellent. <laughs> In the corner. It's Daniel Scharf. I just stand up so you can see what he looks like. It's a baby boomer. How many baby boomers do we have in the room? Not so many. Not even ten, perhaps ten. Um, my question was going to be about passivity. I come from Oxford University and I explore this. And my theory about passivity is that the potential leaders um, of the younger generation somehow are deluded to think that they are immune from what's going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years. They're going to be the elite across the world. They're going to be the leaders of industry, leaders of government, and they think they're going to be immune. And this is no criticism of your book at all. I think it's a wonderful book, mm. together with Mr. Willits, together with Francis Beckett, and I gather there's a fourth one coming out. But it's the environmental pinch, which everybody has to take into account when we look at remedies. And none of the political elites are going to be immune from the environmental pinches, the resource shortages, and the climate change. So I don't accept the passivity. It had some, you have to do something. Right, there are only 10 of us. There are a few hundred of you. You shouldn't let us out of the room. You shouldn't let me go down the street. And I've been walking around the streets of Oxford quite peaceably for four years. This, is, this isn't news, is it? All you've done is put some really good figures to what everybody knows. And I walk around the streets, and I don't actually fear you a lot, which is quite extraordinary. I should just say, just an anecdote, my mother, who taught here for all his, her whole life, was threatened coming in reception in 1968, and that impression lived with her for the rest of her teaching life. Um, how many years later, that lobby is free of students. Um, it's extraordinary, the passivity, the complacency, and the denial, the delusion, and you're just, I, what, what's going to happen is you're going to go on strike. That's the fear. You won't be able to afford the costs, so all you will do is go on strike, and you know the needle will be pulled out of my arm, or my, the nurse will be taken away from my bed. So the ten of us have to get together and organise with the hundreds of you <laughs> and sort this out. To be fair, there were some protests earlier on, I think. And um, we've got a variety of... Uh, I think this gentleman's next. Yes, OK. And uh, there's somebody over here. Hi, thanks a lot. I'm Lionel Benjamin. I've uh, done different things in my life. I'd like to first of all start with a quip. We should have been here yesterday to boo Jonathan Powell, who was Tony Blair's friend who got us into this mess. The second thing is, uh, there's a lot of unemployment 
you know, in Britain, the old people, the people who are over 60, they wanted their pensions, they wanted to get out, and now you see them wandering around the streets without things to do, without enough money to, to do things, and this type of thing, and they're falling apart. There's a whole generation of people who hated work so much, who screwed the way into the best pension they could get, and now they can't do things. Secondly, uh, the whole way of being a person in a town has changed the way we live. And there are now a whole lot of women who have been de-skilled. I mean, Britain as a whole has been de-skilled. But there are a lot of women who have been de-skilled. They no longer, when there's an empty nest, they go out and they drink coffee and they do nothing all day. So we've got a strange country where you know, the older generation theoretically have the money and the pleasure. But if you go and look at them, you know, if you go out during the day, you'll find all the cafes, all the costas, all the cafeineros will have women there who have nothing else to do with their life. And giving money to the EU, it sounds funny, but giving money to the EU, we can't even have part-time classes to teach people without getting money back from the EU. So we're in a really strange predicament in the fact that Britain is becoming de-skilled and it all, and I don't know what's going to happen about it, but the thing is Britain is being de-skilled and it is not visible to our politicians. I would have thought movement of women into the labour force was one of the achievements of our generation actually. But, but, um, well, actually, do you have any view, reactions to that? Well, firstly, on, on that point, actually, about women in the, uh, and older women uh, in the workforce, um, what we looked at was that we found that over the last two years during the recession, it was older women who actually uh, gained an employment. Uh, as a, they were the only group who did. Um, so, no, six? I think it's two or three oh, percent of, of that generation cohort. Um, so that was that's pretty interesting. It goes certainly against the grain of that. They're certainly de-skilled or something like that. Um, uh, on the first gentleman's point uh, over there uh, about these things affecting everyone uh, and certainly the environmental aspect of it, we didn't go into environment in this book. It is a classic intergenerational uh, justice issue. Um, and uh, we, we left that to one side because it's actually been fairly well discussed. So we know that you know, in terms of the climate change or other environmental issues, like environmental degre uh, degradation, um, that that does affect future generations. Um, but one thing we, we, have, we didn't talk about in our talk uh, and one we wanted to raise now was the, another effect, another really pernicious effect, which is kind of postponement of adulthood, um, which is affecting all of us, really. Uh, who are on sort of under 30. It takes longer than ever then, as we said, to get on the housing ladder, to find some sort of stable accommodation. It takes longer than ever to find some stable employment, and people are doing sort of things like unpaid internships to get into employment. Uh, it takes longer than ever, therefore, uh, it's causally linked to all these things, to therefore form relationships and have children. Uh, and that's what we meant, I meant at the beginning of the talk when I said what's determining what. Is it, is it choices that people are making or is it the e economics that are forcing people into these positions? And we're very much of the point of view that it's the economics forcing people away from this, the choices that they would otherwise make. Um, and the result is that there's a biological limit on when people can have children or when couples, traditional couples can have uh, a child and that's usually 45 or 50. Um, and, and, and this postponement of adulthood is just, I mean, I think it's just a real tragedy. Uh, again, speaking to someone a couple of uh, days ago, 
uh, this girl just came up to us and said, asked us for financial advice, which we couldn't give her. But she said, look, you know, all the things I want, yeah, uh, all the things that I wanted to do, like, um, you know, I'm with a partner, I can't settle down, I can't buy a house, I, I really want to have children, I want to have a family, I can't do any of these things. And she was literally on the verge of tears. So that's another effect that's, that's, that will affect all of us, whether you're, um, uh, of which, you know, wherever you are situated on the economic scale, except for the very, very top. I'll take a few questions uh, and then come back. Uh, there's one gentleman over here, yes, and then there are two over here. Um, <clears throat> hi, I'm Fawad. I'm a PhD student at the LSE. Um, a kind of a modest uh, defense of apathy, I mean, a couple of the baby boomers, if I may, uh, suggested that, you know, why as a generation is it not the case that we're more angry and why aren't we protesting? But I take it that part of the message here was that, you know, that would defeat the purpose. I mean, sure, imagine if we all demanded our rights and we demanded our benefits and so on and so forth. We'd just be screwing the next generation afterwards. I mean, what's missing for me is what do you think are the... And I don't want to use this buzzword because it's a terrible one, but what are sustainable policies, the kinds of things that we should stand up for? Because I know what it would be like for me to demand certain things now as for my generation. I could imagine that. I said, look, I want more of this and I want more of that. But I need... You know, from someone who's advocating the kinds of things that you guys are, I'd want to know what's the kind of thing that you can do in the long run that doesn't then just screw the next generation either. Um, oh, l l sorry, let, me, let me take a few here. Uh, two, uh, two women over here. Yes. Hi, I'm Melo Manning, Lib Dem child blogger. Um, <laughs> Um, do you think the uh, big society could bring about a culture change whereby people start thinking long term about sections of people and other generations? Just to say, nice to meet you, by the way, because she's posted on our Facebook page. Uh, so, uh, it's a nice one. Thanks for coming. What's Facebook? There's another, yeah. Facebook? There's another question over here. Yes. Hold on one second. Jennifer Ryan, I was here in 1965 to 68, so the peak of radicalism. Uh, my question is, why do so many young people spend the money that they have on drink and drugs, etc., rather than do some saving? <laughs> right, it's all your fault, really. Um, okay, <clears throat> both of well, you... Uh, uh, Jennifer, lovely to meet you. Um, greetings, comrade, or whatever it is you guys say. Um, um, uh, bit rich, don't you think? I mean, given the amount of drink and drugs, you know, consumed in the mid-60s in that haze of camp cultural whatever. Um, but look, actually, it's a serious question. I mean, um, uh, the short answer is we don't know, but we have a hunch. Um, uh, and it's sort of linked to this idea of protesting. I mean, the truth is... Um, uh, in terms of Xboxes and iPhones and that stuff, our generation has done terribly well. I mean, obviously they didn't exist earlier, but I mean, we have amazing quantity of disposable stuff at our fingertips. Um, and indeed, our society encourages us to buy that. Um, I mean, not in a kind of, not, not in a vague sense of um, uh, 
of conspiracy, but simply because you know we, we live in a consumer capitalist society, and you know the objective of many people's lives is to consume. Indeed, one of the earlier points raised this idea that there are all these women um, knocking around in cafes. I'm not sure I subscribe to that, but um, but that people, but that there are all these retired people who don't quite know what to do with their lives. And actually, that's that's quite an interesting and strange situation. I'm not even sure it's true because I think actually as a percentage of the population, they're more likely to be involved in civil society. But certainly, you do get the phenomenon of. Um, kind of lost youth who, you know, uh, shorn of their ability to really take part in the consumer society, really are completely lost because they don't know how to express themselves. And of course, there are very legitimate mechanisms by which we express ourselves. Um, but our hunch about why it is that we um, spend all our money on this crap is that um, is that actually it's quite easy to make yourself feel good by buying this kind of frivolous stuff. And you, have, you need to make yourself feel good because you're never going to be able to afford to buy a house. I mean, saving for a pension seems to be impossible. In terms of what your kind of nudgy behavioural uh, kind of notions are, my hunch is it's probably the case that, um, that, that these things are so far out of reach that behaving responsibly seems to be impossible or meaningless because it's, 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 it's never going to happen. Um, but I don't know if that's true. And in the process of writing the book, we sort of wanted to write it, but couldn't quite find sufficient research to prove the point. So we'll continue to look for it. Um, in terms of the other points, just very quickly, I know she will have quite a lot to say. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm sort of the slightly more right-wing uh, wing of this this game. Duo, yeah. um, uh, and I mean, I, I'm quite hopeful about the big society, um, at least in theory, because I think that the institutions of civil society uh, and localism are among the better ways that we can begin to relate to each other and make rational collective decisions and engage with each other beyond merely, um, you know, uh, through the marketplace. Um, uh, I mean, I do think human beings are more than simply utility-maximising rational actors. I do think there is a need for us to engage with one another in complex long-term problems. Um, so anything that encourages that, I think, is, is hopeful. But um, whether or not massive um, reform uh, the government's trying to undertake and massive cuts is going to work, I don't know. Um, and whether or not kind of civil society will pick up the pieces uh, you know, if there are huge cuts to welfare budgets that might previously have done it. I mean, I don't know either. So I'm not quite sure whether that answers the question. So uh, on, to answer the question of if there's anything that we can do that's more sustainable than simply standing up and, uh, and, and being angry and then therefore hoping that government pays us more attention. Um, yes, there is. And I think the answer is this, which is the other name for the big society from the left, if you want. It's called mutualism. Um, so essentially, there's a big... Liberals were right when they said this, and those were social liberals who stood up for personal freedoms, as well as economic liberals. And they said one basically had one big problem, which is that the state forces you to do things, and people don't want to be told what to do, right? Either with their money or, you know, in their bedroom. That's basically what it came down to, if you want. Um, and, uh, and, and they were right. They had a real uh, brilliant point, uh, and they won that point uh, on many, many fronts. Um, the question is, actually, the, or the point that a guy called Avner Offer raises in Oxford, he said, actually, collective institutions like the state are really good ways of actually saving for the future, uh, providing what he calls prudential goods, things like housing, things like pensions, um, and, and all sorts of other goods. And they're not particularly very good at providing consumer goods. Uh, and that is best left to the market. 
Um, so the question is, how do you then provide for these sustainable ends, like you know, better housing? Um, let's just stick with that for a second, um, without then getting the state involved. So that's a really complicated problem. Um, and the answer is, there is a third way, which is that you don't involve the state, you don't involve individuals, because individuals can't, for example, build houses very well themselves, and the market isn't doing it very well at this point. Um, but you get uh, non-state institutions to do that, right, to step in. Um, and that's what we're kind of lacking at the moment. And that's what, I mean, so we used to build most of our housing stock was through cooperatives and uh, mutual banks and, lo and behold, building societies. That's what they were for. They were collective groups of people who came together and said, actually, yeah, maybe we'll just club together and start building these things. And they had all sorts of regulations to make sure that they didn't uh, use their special statuses for, for corrupt ends. Um, but then all those things were deregulated and we decided, no, we'll leave it to the market instead. So maybe that is the route to go down in terms of, um, of refinding something a bit more sustainable. Uh, Germany does it really well, for example. They don't really have much housing inflation. And it means that people don't have to worry about a house over their head and paying so much of their income you know, every month, either in rent or in a mortgage. And, and things in that sense of are more sustainable and more productive economically as well. Uh, that gentleman over there. I'm not too happy about the way the discussion's going. So when I hear somebody from the audience saying things like, how can we demand rights without screwing the next generation? What it leads me to think is there's a real danger about your book effectively being an expression of pessimism about the possibility of change. And I actually think growth, consumerism, development, capitalism, I think all of those things are good things. And I want to defend the baby boomers. And I think that they shouldn't internalize this sense of guilt. And I think that you, the younger generation, need to take responsibility. It's not good enough to have an ahistorical approach to just say it was this particular generation, they messed it all up. If you want to have a debate about capitalism in the market and is there an alternative, that's fine. But I think the danger of what you're saying has been reflected in some of the contributions in the audience. It's that we mess things up, that we destroy things, that we destroy things for the next generation, we destroy our planet, the climate. And you get into this culture of self-loathing, which I think is very problematic. Okay. Uh, there's a point over there. Mm -hmm. Um, with the new um, budget that's being released today and funding being taken out of the next generation, isn't this problem just going to get worse and worse if we're not going to carry on investing in the next generation? I mean, as it is, we don't manufacture it nearly enough and we invest so much into our services. Isn't it time to start bringing back manufacturing into, our, um, into the UK? Because at the end of the day, we need to start building back our economy in order to tackle this deficit. Gentleman in the middle there. Um, hi, my name's Alan. I'm from Australia. Um, I'm just visiting. Um, I take your point. Well, I take the point that some um, some of the audience was making about um, the um, passivity in the young. Um, we see that in, in Australia as well. Um, but uh, coming from 
you, you guys say you came from Paris or France. I was wondering if you thought um, the jilted generation there was equally passive given the kind of pictures we've seen in the past few days. And if that's not the case, why is it different? And whether we could take any lessons from that? Okay, I'll just pick up those three points. Um, uh, okay, um, very quickly on France. Um, I mean, I think there is a different political culture in France which might explain why it is much more active and it is much more active. Um, so, um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, and, then, and actually that, that political culture is probably a bit more mutualistic and has um, lots of concepts of egalitarianism built, kind of embedded within it, um, for better or worse. Shiv um, can talk about that in a bit more uh, detail. I just, um, I just wanted to turn to the gentleman over here who, um, who called us dangerous, which is awesome. Um, uh, uh, that's brilliant when that happens. I'm, I'm a journalist, so obviously whenever I, I find out something that's potentially dangerous, I know I'm onto a good thing. Um, uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure it is dangerous, actually. Um, uh, we are, I hasten to add, um, uh, capitalists. We believe in growing economies. We believe in growth generally and that money is good and that when we have lots of it as a society that's generally better. Um, this isn't a communist tract um, and nor is this a tract that necessarily is predicated on the idea that you need a particularly large state to sort things out. Um, it merely is about the mechanisms of decision making. And to be absolutely clear, nor do we um, uh, blame an entire generation for and, and the, the individuals within that generation for the problems that we identify, but they are real. They do exist, and we can't dismiss them. Um, we don't want to create or help to fuel the kind of culture of self-loathing. What we're doing is much more simple, really. We're just saying, if we can make decisions a bit better than we have done in the past, we won't suffer as much as we're probably going to in the future, um, uh, and that'll be better. I think, uh, to follow up on that point, um, about self-loathing, you know, it's really awful. People, people do hate themselves in, in many ways, right? Younger people. And, and why it is is because they think they failed. They think they're not being able to, like, you know, get a house or, or, uh, or settle down into a relationship uh, or get a good job. Uh, and that's a huge thing, obviously. Is their own personal failure. And so they hate themselves. And when you turn around to someone and say, hang on, it's not your fault. It's not your fault within you. It's not because you're lazy or you're just, you know, sloven or you spend too much on drink, right? It's, that's, not, that's not the real problem. What's going on here is something external, right? Obviously, these things interchange. But the, there is something going on that is external to you. And therefore, you don't have to hate yourself. You just have to work with other people. And that's what politics is. That's what politics is. So, in fact, the, we're doing the exact opposite. We're turning people who would otherwise, I think, and do hate themselves or think they failed personally and turn them around and say, well, hang on. Yeah, actually, these are external things. These are things which require pol political action. Um, the thing about investment, to pick up on that point, yeah, um, with the, the CSR today, uh, there are, I think government's kind of confused. It doesn't actually know what to cut or, or, or why and what it's cutting. It, it is really confused because there's two things, right, that you can do uh, to, you know, to, to, to divide things into these two things, two categories. There's one which is kind of redistribution, right, which is basically benefits uh, and, and those kinds of things, right? And there's another thing which is investment. And, and the government seems to not care which what it does. But actually investment is really good uh, in many ways for redistributing to a generation. Um, and if you say to yourself, well, we can't afford benefits, then so be it, if you don't want to raise taxes, for example. 
uh, or you're constrained by wider circumstances, so you can't raise taxes. Um, and, uh, and in terms of its investment record, I mean, this goes back, this confusion over what the state should be doing as well, uh, and the changing role of it goes back like 40, 50 years. If you, we looked back again, we had to do a lot of looking back, um, uh, to about the 1960s, uh, as far as the stats go. Um, and, and the state used to put in 7% of GDP into public investment. 7%, that's a huge figure. That went down under the Thatcher era to about 1% or 2%. And it never rose to above 4%, even under New Labour. It never rose above 4%. So that means it was a massive shift in what the state did. It used to invest. It used to be the, the, the organisation that built the roads and built you know, railways and built all of these things, right? And it stopped doing that. And the, way it, and, the, and the other way it replaced that was through PFI, which is basically, again, as we said, a credit card charged to the next generation. So it's a cheats way of doing that. Um, so yeah, there is a real confusion of what the government should be doing, what it's doing, and yeah, and it doesn't really know. Uh, it's an awful thing, an awful thing. There's a, there's a further point I'd make just on the subject of investment, which is that um, Treasury report after Treasury report looks at long-term economic forecasting and goes, well, hold on, actually private sector investment's not really high enough either. Mm -hmm. um, and that's another kind of big problem, because we haven't, I mean, I'd, I'd like to see the government, I mean, the real answer to your question is, you know, there's massive unemployment in this kind of cohort of people. The government should be doing more about it, because it should be embedding good practice, good working practices among those people as soon as possible. Um, and I'd like to see them do more on that. I suspect the only way they can do more on that is through the private sector. So I'd like to see them have, you know, get some policies together that would ensure that private sector investment will rise, you know, both in R&D and in terms of, you know, apprenticeships and lots of other kind of tooling up of, the, of, of, of young people. Okay, uh, right to, to that. Thanks very much. I'm Chris Carter. I'm a member of the Selfish Generation. I have to say, I've, I've got no hope for French youth as they seem to be coming out and protesting for the right for the Selfish Generation to continue to retire at 55 and 60. So I don't hold up much hope for French students. They don't seem to have grasped the nature of the problem very clearly. But um, uh, it strikes me, going back to what Professor Legrand said at the beginning, in addition to unexpected longevity, that's clearly one big problem. The other side of the problem is this dramatic fall in fertility rates, which is a real global phenomenon. I mean, across Europe, obviously Japan, China's population will be shrinking from 2030, Russia's population is already falling, America kind of is barely able to replace itself, although there's much less, less, of a, less, less of a problem there. South Korea is in the same position. There's something much more fundamental going on there that crosses all kinds of political cultures. It's not just Thatcher or the West. There's something global going on that I'm kind of, I don't know if you've got any, any particular ex explanation for that. Well, let, mm, Hold sorry, on a second. Yeah, let's just get, uh, there's a gentleman in the back there. Hello, Alex Karnstein, currently a student here. Thank you, first of all, for the interesting talk. And um, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about protest, but being from Germany and the jilted generation in Germany, one thing I always ask myself is, is, is there a chance that we could get change uh, from the normal democratic process, me meaning an election? Because now we're a minority and it's only getting worse. So, is there any chance to, you know, ameliorate the situation through the normal process of, a, of an election? Thank you. Uh, okay, do you want to respond to those two questions? Yeah, uh, in terms of um, the birth rate problem, uh, 
And what would be the thing that you would do if you didn't want birth rates to rise? Let's just flip it around like that, right? Certainly, you'd say to people, okay, spend most of your early years, right? Because everyone knows there's one limit on it. It's a biological limit, right? 45, 50, something like that, right? And 50 is really stretching it. Uh, so you would say this, okay, go and uh, uh, take on a lot of debt, feel really insecure, don't make it really expensive to buy a house or find some kind of stable accommodation, so it could be council housing as well, um, and instead we'll make you rent, where you can be thrown out at any time by your landlord or landlady if they want to, even though you do all the right things. Right? Let's make sure that you don't have a stable job. Let's make sure you have no career, right? which is really different because it says to someone, actually, you don't know where you're going to be next year or the year afterwards, right? because they could sack you at any time. And then let's see if you want to have children. And the answer to that is they won't. And if the same phenomenon is going on in various different countries, especially in Britain, then you will see birth rates plummet. People will say, well, we don't want to have kids. And what's happening is actually people are having children really young or really late. And that's what's happened. That's what's occurred. So um, uh, uh, we've had a little bit of a baby boom, but tiny in comparison to what's occurred before over the last five or six years. And it's basically a lot of uh, couples later on in their lives going, okay, finally, yes, we have to do it because it's an emergency, because we don't, we're not going to ever be able to have kids. That's what's going on. So I would suggest if you wanted to increase the birth rate, start worrying about how to reverse that situation. What's your attitude following on from that? What's your attitude towards immigration? In what way? As a way of dealing with the problem of uh, too many elderly people. Well, yeah, I mean, that, basically, that's the liberal solution, um, and uh, is to say, well, okay, look, just let people and money go wherever they want, right? Uh, let's not have any constraints. And that means that the way in which you resolve this is just to increase immigration. But then what, that, what flows on from that, and incidentally, the, the predicted rise in population in this country uh, comes from not immigration, as is often told to us. There is a massive, going to be a massive increase in population, but it doesn't come from immigration in large part. It comes from people not dying like they used to. Um, as I said, sort of 10 million over 75, it's a massive increase in, in people, as I said, not dying like they used to. Um, and that's where the majority of our uh, rise in population comes from. But to answer the point, is it a good solution to just say, well, yeah, just, you know, let's take our culture um, and our situation and our natural situation, and if we're not going to cater for those people who are around uh, exist here, and these become very tricky situations, by providing them with something like decent housing or decent jobs, and let more people come in to make sure that the older generation are at least stable, then we've got real problems about who we are as a country. And then you just have to say, well, then everything is just about an individual making it on their own. And it becomes very diluted. And the ideas of legacy then also become completely diluted. We've well, got to... time for just... Oh, do you... oh, sorry, just very quickly on this um, uh, issue of the declining birth rate. I mean, there are... I mean, just answer, I think, uh, I broadly agree with that um, um, educating women has a dramatic effect as well. Um, uh, that's my generalisation about women for this evening. <laughs> kind of, um, uh, uh, just in terms of this question um, regarding whether the democratic process will fix any of this stuff, I mean, I, I, mean, I think the answer to that is it sort of depends how you define democracy. I mean, there is a vision of representative democracy which is based around sectional interests. And there are um, between 11 and 13 million of us and 18 million baby boomers and we, we, we can just never win. The, you know, the maths will never allow us to, to win. But I mean, actually, there is another version 
of democracy too, of representative democracy, where you have um, leaders who pitch up with ideas and fight a, a genuine rational debate about which ideas are best, um, where they try and govern on behalf of all people. And we, um, we think better of them for that. Um, and I hope that, that, that we get more of that, and that, I, that idea of democracy wins out above um, kind of mere sexual interest. Well, thank you. Um, just run for another two questions. Yes, gentlemen, no. Yeah, um, you say people aren't dying like they used to, and we've had points about old people ambling the streets with nothing to do in Costa, etc. So I think it's really important that we educate these people in ICT, new technology, so they're not alienated from society. Okay. Oh. Thank you. Any other points that anyone would like to raise before we close? Yes. Gentleman here. Is there not an issue with um, the way that young people today, when I was young, there were four channels on the television and I would sit and there would always be some news input into my day through television, whereas these days there are 57 channels and nothing to watch. You can effectively live your life. And my sample is only my own experience, my own teenagers. They live their lives, generally speaking, choosing not to take part in debate because they don't see news at all during their day. They become completely depoliticized and almost detached from society have become a kind of PlayStation generation where they really believe that they can live their lives if they make a mistake, they can press restart and everything will be okay. Mm. And I wonder to what extent that multiplies out through the jilted generation, that, that it's become much easier than, for them to detach themselves from debate and therefore become more passive and less politicized than maybe I was. Um, I, if I could ask you both I think, to, to, to wind up any, and any final points you'd like to make in response to these questions and more generally. Um, I think that's a great point to, to end on. Um, uh, as far as I can see, um, there's more than an element of truth in that observation. I think it's very, very easy to, and you, I mean, you see this in the, all kinds of media outputs actually. It's very easy for kind of the, the, kind of the surreal world of celebrity and uh, the fictional world of kind of World of Warcraft and kind of Medal of Honor and all the other kind of games and, uh, and types of media that are kind of just pr a profusion uh, across young people's lives um, to dominate. But the truth of the matter is that actually reality does bite. It, it bites soon after university. And I feel confident that um, uh, when people, I mean, as soon as people actually finish their education and... Um, are forced into the real world, which in increasing numbers, they are finding themselves in very difficult situations, having finished university and their schooling, um, then they do take more of an interest. And I hope that'll grow. Um, I'm optimistic about it, therefore. We're both optimistic. Um, to answer your question, yes. Any further questions? Well, uh, just thank you very much for all coming. And, uh, and in the words of my publisher, please buy our book, uh, which is outside. Uh, I'm always tasked with this uh, thing. Uh, so um, and I think we'll also be signing, uh, 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 both of us will be signing as well. So it'll be worth even more when you sell it on eBay later. Well, I think it's for us to thank you very much. You've given us a very provocative talk, and we've had a number of very useful, provocative questions. Thank you very much indeed.